we could <coughs> excuse me we could probably go on and on with the Q&A but we'll have some time for that in the morning so I think instead uh, I'll take the opportunity to actually do some touching on two important topics <coughs> because they're fundamental to your understanding of what's going on here and what's involved in doing practice. And the first thing I'd like to talk about is mindfulness and what it actually <coughs> is and why it's so important in the Buddhist teachings. How many of you are familiar with mindfulness? Sort of a, a little? Okay, so there's some knowing of the word. And this is a word that's being heard a lot now. Mindful this, mindful that, you know. I read some, uh, in some magazine recently, mindful drinking and, <laughs> well, for a little while at least, right? Right up to the second cocktail maybe. So it's in popular usage and with it moving into popular usage it's getting a little bit blurred and so I wanted to talk about how it's held within the Buddhist practice tradition. So in practicing insight meditation we're actually calling up or summoning this particular quality of mind called mindfulness or as it's called in Pali Sati. And it's particularly important in the Buddha's teaching because it's the key to the whole process of ending delusion. And if you know anything about the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha basically says that discretionary human suffering is rooted in craving born of ignorance. So he says there's ignorance first, and then from this not knowing or this uh, actively misknowing, misunderstanding how things actually operate, craving arises, and craving is the cause of our suffering, craving and the, the other states and actions that flow from craving. So if you were going to reverse engineer this process of suffering arising from craving that's rooted in ignorance, You'd be looking in the direction of trying to find a way to address ignorance or delusion as it's often called. So in the the last uh, session I made some comments about delusion and I said one of the things about delusion is that seeing delusion is kind of like trying to see the back of your head. If you knew you were deluded, you wouldn't be deluded. But you may generically know something is not clicking or something's not right, something is out of alignment in how you understand things, but you can't really get a handle on it. So this process of insight meditation and the use of this particular quality of mind called sati or mindfulness is very much about uprooting wrong understanding, uprooting wrong 
view that causes us to be out of harmony with how things are and to actually suffer. So mindfulness addresses ignorance or delusion at its root and it brings us back into direct contact with reality and out of our craving habits of mind. And so it's foundational to the whole enterprise that we're doing here. So it's a kind of practice of sanity, resting in what we can directly know experientially and moving away from the kind of spinning speculation which we more commonly are bound up in. So if you could say this practice of insight meditation and the use of sati within the practice is how we establish accurate connection with reality, a corrective to our delusions about what's actually going on. Insight meditation is a field of practice in which learning can arise It's a place where the mind can rest quiet and calm and drop resistance. It's a place where we can make new choices about our behavior because we're seeing clearly what's going on. And in a certain way you can see it's the place where we have maximum freedom from whatever our existing unskillful conditioning is. So sometimes when I'm talking about mindfulness and the establishment of presence, I'll say something like, whoever would have guessed that knowing what you're experiencing while you're experiencing it could be helpful? Whoever would have guessed that knowing what you're experiencing while you're experiencing it could be helpful? And hardly anybody ever laughs, but to me it's like, think about it. If you're not knowing what you're experiencing as it's happening, are you making choices that have any intelligence and wisdom in them? Well, maybe if whatever your existing uh, unconscious conditioning is has some of those strains in it, then maybe that is going to be the direction that you choose or the direction that you follow. If you've got the good record playing in your subconscious or unconscious mind. But a lot of the conditioning that we have that is not necessarily accessible to view is not so helpful, not so skillful, right? And we know that this is the case because you've been on retreat here for a nearly a full day now, and I'm sure most of you have seen many mind states come and go, right? And they, they haven't all been, let's put it this way, crystalline and uh, filled with wholesome and skillful states, right? There's probably been some hard stuff that, that's come up. States of uh, greed or craving, uh, aversion, and delusion, very mixes, varying mixes of that, right? Painful, personal um, things. So we have a lot of uh, existing conditioning that can arise in the present 
in a way that's semi-conscious or uh, nearly unconscious. And if mindfulness is not established, guess what? That's just what you do. Because there's no choice point. There's, there's not an awareness of what the state is that's present or the emotion is that's present. It just kind of does its thing. Anybody have the experience today of like suddenly finding yourself in a different part of the building but you couldn't really remember making the decision to like head back to your room or whatever you were doing but you were kind of like just there? It's really common on retreat to start being aware of the fact that, you know, there are large gaps of time where we're semi-conscious or unconscious, but we're kind of walking around, we're doing things, we're eating or we're taking a shower, you know, putting on clothes, but are we awake to it? No. Often not. So if we're not even awake to what's happening when it's happening, how much freedom do we have in regard to that? So there's something about establishing wakefulness in the present that gives us the place of maximum personal power if you want to think of it in those terms. And this quality of sati is really key, is really linchpin. It's the most important element. So this is a very important quality, but it's hard to give a simple definition of this because it's a very simple attribute of mind, but we usually don't experience just one mental factor at a time, so sati often arises with other things as well. But if we were going to take a look at how we could say simply what this is, this thing that we're trying to cultivate because it's so important, we could look at what some of the our contemporary teachers have given in terms of definition. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a, a great uh, scholar and translator says that mindfulness is a presence of mind attentiveness or awareness and he says it's a special pitch of consciousness in which the mind is kept at the level of what he calls bare attention b-a-r-e attention a detached observation of what's happening within us and around us in the present moment He says, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, alert, in touch with what's happening. All judgments and interpretations are to be suspended or, if they occur, registered and dropped. The task is simply to note whatever comes up just as it's occurring. So in a certain sense, the mind becomes a little bit like one of those supermarket scanners. You ever really watch what's going on with those things where they take the, the can or whatever it is and they slide it across the sensor? 
The sensor isn't moving, right? Experience in the form of the can is moving. The sensor is registering it. So it's a little bit like that. So the sensor at the grocery store isn't going, oh, bad choice. <laughs> There's a lot better buy on aisle four. Right? Oh, too much trans fats. Right? There's fresher produce in the organic section. Right? It's just registering what's, what, the, what it is and some of the d- pertinent details of it. It itself is not getting engaged beyond the level of receiving it in real time in whatever degree of detail or grain of manifestation is present and is knowable. The barcode, right? So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, mindfulness brings to light experience in its pure immediacy. It reveals the object, i.e. what is being known, as it is before it's been plastered over with conceptual paint, overlaid with interpretations. So this goes back to one of the questions that was asked in the hall about, you know, the arising of anger and how you treat the arising of thoughts of anger and anger in meditation practice. And I basically gave you a distinction between how it would be worked with in psychotherapy or in a setting where you're really investigating personal narrative and how you would relate to it when it arises in insight meditation practice, where you relate to it as something that's going over the scanner. Right? just as it is in real time. This is the experience right now of this thing. It feels like this. As I'm present with it, I notice this. And he says, mindfulness simply notes, watching each occasion of experience as it arises, comes into being or is known in the mind, stands, has its manifestation, and passes away, either fades, disappears, or is replaced by something else which is more predominant. And he says, there's a sustained knowing of experience in its bare immediacy, carefully, precisely, and persistently. Sustained knowing of bare experience. So Bhante Gunarantana, who is also a great scholar and a... um, um, teacher from Sri Lanka says that sati is an activity the activity of knowing in this kind of way and he says vipassana meditation is a set of mental activities specifically aimed at experiencing a state of uninterrupted mindfulness the purpose of meditation is to train us to prolong the moment of awareness to begin to move the mind in the direction of not having so many holes of disconnection and delusion in the mind stream where we're offline, we don't know what's what's going on. So he says, mindfulness is like a mirror. 
It reflects only what's present and presently happening and in exactly the way it's happening. There are no biases. So you can see there's no for or against things when mindfulness is present. There can be an awareness in the mind that a state has arisen that is unwholesome, meaning an offshoot of greed, aversion, or delusion that has the potential for suffering. So there's still discernment there, like you wouldn't want to cultivate aversion probably. That wouldn't lead to a really happy life. So it's not like that discernment about what you want to cultivate collapses, but it's just a way of saying in the immediate moment you treat everything the same to the extent that you can, meaning you apply mindful receptivity in relationship to what's actually there. And mindfulness has this amazing property in that it actually strengthens the frequency and the strength of wholesome factors of mind, states of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, meaning generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom. It actually strengthens those states, plants many wholesome seeds that ripen in that direction, and it has the other attribute of actually undercutting the proliferation of unwholesome states of mind. So states of greed, hatred, and delusion, when mindfulness meets them, it undercuts their power. And over the longer term, you could say the application of mindfulness within the mind stream is almost like having a fertilizer with the exactly right pH for your internal garden. So it suppresses the weeds of the suffering state and it encourages the growth of the wholesome states. So you can see it's a really powerful, powerful quality of mind. So Bhante Gunaranta says, the role of mindfulness in receiving experience, in knowing immediate experience, is non-judgmental observation the ability to observe without criticism. So as I said earlier, the discernment doesn't disappear or collapse, right? Hopefully there's discernment there, like, yeah, I don't want to cultivate hatred. I don't want to, you know, be sitting here egging it on and voluntarily feeding myself a lot of those kinds of thoughts. But you can recognize when hatred is actually there. Okay, this is hatred. This is painful. This is difficult. This is what it feels like in the body and the mind when this state is present. So the the mind in a certain sense is able to develop equanimity over time and just open up to whatever it is. Treat it all in the same kind of way in its present moment arising. So he says, mindfulness has a balanced interest in things exactly as they are in their arising state. Whatever experience we may be having, mindfulness just accepts it. Accepts that it's happening. 
So he says there's an impartial watchfulness present there. Mindfulness doesn't take sides. It doesn't get hung up on what's perceived. It doesn't cling to things. It doesn't flee from things. It treats all experience equally. It treats all feelings equally. So this is an interesting learning when you first are starting meditation, right? So you're sitting in the hall and and maybe you're... uh, raise your hand and you have a question for the teacher and the um, you say something like, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm feeling all this sadness and I'm, you know, or I'm sitting here and I'm feeling all this anger or I'm sitting here and I'm feeling, you know, this pain in the body. Now in another setting, and this goes back to both retreat culture and uh, the learning field of meditation, in another environment, if you said that to the teacher at the front of the room, the teacher might go over to you and say, oh, you poor thing, you're so sad. Well, honey, I can tell that you're okay. You know, just come over to me and I'm, you know, here, have a Kleenex. Do you want a hug? Right? I mean, that would be considered a humane thing to do. Somebody's manifesting distress, and so you're going to go to them and you're going to embrace them and you know, take care of them. Or maybe this is just female socialization that I'm manifesting here, <laughs> right? But you're gonna you're gonna want to relieve that. You're gonna m- go forward to 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 meet somebody. So you notice, I you know, we've had a number of different difficult things come up in the hall, and the way I've I've worked with it is the way meditation teachers who are who are committed to upgrading your own capacity to meet your difficult states, work with it, which is to try to do some coaching right here in the room about how you could hold it, how you could relate to it as it's actually happening. How you, in other words, could establish mindfulness in relationship to that experience you're actually having. So if somebody says, you know, I'm feeling a lot of a lot of sadness. I'll say, well, okay, so sadness, sadness. How do you know sadness? What do you notice about sadness? Well, you know, there's like this feeling of warmth at the eyes and then the tears come out and then the tears, you know, come down. I feel it, you know, sensations in the face and, right? So this is the way mindfulness in the immediate sense relates to a rising experience within a meditative context. Now, that doesn't mean in another setting you wouldn't do some different kind of action, right? That you would just say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> your mother or your sister is having a hard time. You just say, well, mom, just note, note, note what you're feeling right now, right? <laughs> okay? Different settings, different trainings. Relational practice different set of rules. On the cushion practice, learning to work with your own body-mind system, this set of rules. Doing what you need to do in, in order to be able to basically develop the capacity to expose the operation of your own mind stream in real time, real continuous time, so that your mind stream can actually become visible to you And in the process of becoming visible to you, purify itself.
from its delusion and from the suffering that springs from it. That's what this process is about. So, Bhante Gunaranta says, mindfulness doesn't add anything to perception or subtract anything from it. It's just the, just the facts, just what's happening, just as you're experiencing it, just as it's being experienced. Being receptive right there, being present right there, knowing things right there. He says it's non-conceptual awareness. It's not thinking, although thinking may arise and be known mindfully. So we haven't had the chance to talk too much about working directly with thinking and mindfulness, but it's a huge field of practice. Huge field of practice to be able to relate to thinking as it's happening and relate to thinking as an event. He says, mindfulness is the direct and immediate experiencing of whatever is happening without the medium of thought. It's pre-thought in the perceptual process. And this is really true as mindfulness quickens and gets stronger and concentration also grows uh, in meditation practice. You can develop the capacity to actually get under the level of thinking and have the uh, experience of having thinking actually shut off for sustained periods of time. That'd be different, wouldn't it? Have thinking not be the dominant experience. He says, mindfulness is awareness of change, observing the passing flow of experience, watching things moment by moment continuously. So if you look at some common elements to the description that Bhikkhu Bodhi and uh, uh, Bhante Gunaranjana gave, you would notice receptive, patient, non-judging awareness, connected, sensing, presence, a kind of beginner's mind, meaning expectation and demand-free. Sometimes uh, when mindfulness is being spoken about, the phrase is used, mindfulness doesn't care. I hear that a lot at Spirit Rock, that phrase being used. Mindfulness doesn't care. I don't tend to use it because I think you could get the wrong idea. I would say mindfulness cares democratically (laughs) for anything it can experience. But anything it can experience is equally worthy of the attention of mindfulness. That's the way I'd put it. So there's a kind of interested, allowing, non-interfering receptivity to things exactly as they manifest. And a kind of intimate and immediate knowing. So that's the quality, sati, very important. This mindfulness meditation that we're doing, also called vipassana, also called insight meditation practice, really highlights this particular factor of mind, brings it forward, develops it, puts it to use. So we all have some of this quality 
and we can develop more of it. So it's a very simple quality. It's very uncomplex. That's part of the challenge of learning how to rest in it because our minds have the conditioned tendency to immediately go to complexification and to thinking about what we're experiencing, kind of ricocheting off this level of immediate direct perception into a lot of associative thinking about something that we just perceived with some level of mindfulness. It kind of ricochets off. If any of you noticed that while you're here, you may have been sitting here and maybe you were, you heard a sound or you smelled something coming from the kitchen or you had a body sensation. How the mind can skip involuntarily, like from that like smell of cookies in the kitchen to thinking about chocolate, to remembering chocolate that you have at home, to thinking about what's going on at home, to, you know, worrying if they're feeding your cat, to, right? I mean, it goes, it's just like skipping a stone across a surface of a very calm lake. All from the arising of this sense experience that you knew to be the smell of chocolate. And you're all the way home worrying about your cat. Just like that. And then it goes on from there. It might be ten minutes before you remember, oh, where am I? Oh, I'm in the meditation hall. What was? Oh, lost again. (laughs) Happens really fast. Now, one thing about mindfulness is that one moment of mindfulness is key to the, the arising of a next moment of mindfulness. So one of the conditions for the arising of mindfulness is a previous moment of mindfulness. So this quality of mind, as it gets more and more established, starts to fill in the gaps, the periods of time where the mind goes offline and becomes disconnected and lost in various forms of delusion. So if you were on a a longer retreat of this type, for instance, at a certain point the teacher would be really urging you to continuity. I did a little bit of that today. Remember when you were in here sitting and, and I said, okay, you've got mindfulness established in the body, so now when you stand up, try to feel the sensations in your body as you stand up. Now you're still in your body. Now you're going to go do walking meditation. Well, you could still feel the bottom of your feet as you walk to go do your walking meditation. Remember that? That was me trying to encourage you to continuity without making you crazy by saying, be continuous, be continuous. No gaps in your practice. Be continuous. Try harder. Which I have enough experience to realize would would send you around the bend. Right? But if you were on longer retreats, this kind of encouragement would get more and more direct. And they would, the teacher would start to encourage you to fill in the particular places in your day where you've come to learn that the mind goes off on a vacation, uh, a vacation or a nightmare or just into distraction. So I can remember being here for the first time on a three-month retreat 
And the way the, the teaching was done at that time, this is like around 1987, there was a lot of effort, uh, emphasis on effort and striving. You know, like trying, you know, not, you know, striving and you notice this and stay on the breath and don't drift and the, right? At least that's how it felt to me. <laughs> okay. And so over the course of the three months, gradually as the instructions continued, the teachers would add things that you should be aware of. So, you know, they would add, you should, you know, be aware as you walk out of the hall. You know, you should, in the walking practice, you should be aware of the uh, three parts of the step, lifting, moving, placing, oh, I guess it was five, uh, shifting, right? Or maybe you should pay attention to eight different pieces of each step. And then when you go in to have your, your lunch, you should do eating meditation and you should, you know, okay. Now you, then you should be aware while you're waiting in line to go in and do your eating. And you should be, you know, so they would like keep pointing to smaller and smaller segments of the day and say, pay attention there, pay attention there, okay. This is where you lose awareness and kind of go into these delusive uh, spirals of uh, disconnection. And I can remember when they got to the point when, where they said, now, you know, in your own room, when you go in your room, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you go in your room. Because doesn't that kind of feel like that's a practice-free zone in there often? It's like, you open the door, oh, my God. <laughs> but when they got to the, when you take a shower, I was like, Oh, I almost cried. It's like, no, not the shower. <laughs> it's like the best space out. It's the only space out place left. I want the shower. Don't make me pay attention in the shower. <laughs> but you could see, you know, the way of teaching in that style is to basically say, well, what are you doing now? Do you know you're doing that? Are you mindful? Well, what are you doing now? Do you know you're doing that? Are you mindful? What are you doing now? You know you're doing that? Are you mindful? But it was very illuminating in a certain kind of way because it was a very direct pointing out that a lot of times I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't mindful. And it wasn't just me, it was everybody. So there's a lot of potential for growth here in terms of being able to sustain, develop and sustain a baseline of mindfulness. So the more mindfulness you have, that mindfulness is a resource and a cause and condition for the arising of future mindfulness. So any amount of it that you have is a good thing. And you can add on to it. You know, like those charm bracelets that you get where you can like add new things to it. You can add presence in this relationship. You can add presence in doing this activity. You can add presence at this sense door. You can add presence at this place. You can begin to join these moments, these moments of presence, into a more continuous flow, a continuous stream. So in learning how to do this practice and in practicing it, one thing that's really important is to have a good grasp on the instructions. 
Because everything about the instructions that are given are designed to move the mind into the present and into wise relationship with what's being known. In other words, to help you establish mindfulness. So I can, I can tell you that I teach mostly longer retreats and it's kind of surprising and a little bit dismaying sometimes that you know you can come across people who have been practicing for you know 10 15 years sometimes and when you actually have a chance to sit down and talk to them about their practice instructions you find out that they weren't clear about what it was they were actually supposed to be doing so there was a lot of wasted motion in their practice and then you know you need to help open that up for them so it's important to know the instructions so one goal for you as practitioners could be or should be that if a teacher said to you what instructions do you use you should be able to say it back to them in other words just like I gave you a set of instructions here, you should be able to say, say back to a teacher, say, well, you know, I, f- I focus on establishing presence by first going to noticing the space around me, the ambient experience of the room, and then I direct awareness towards the body, and I start with feeling in through the touch points, then I do a open body scan and I let go of any tension in the body that I can and turn awareness towards the full sense of the body sitting. Once that's established, then I go to the sensations of the breath at the abdomen and watch the, the rising and falling of the breath. And then maybe just depending on what set of instructions you are actually using, you might say, If another experience becomes predominant, i.e. more of a foreground experience, I open to that experience. I, I name it, I note it, I practice with it. When that experience passes away, depending on what your own instructions are, I go back to uh, awareness of the breath until something else becomes predominant, in which case I turn to it, open to it, mindfully investigate it. Or maybe your instructions are, for yourself are, I establish mindfulness in in the body and then I turn awareness to hearing. I work with hearing as an anchor. I let my mind rest with hearing. If another uh, experience becomes predominant, I name it, I note it, I turn awareness towards it. When a third object becomes predominant in the present, I open to that third, third object. That's more of an open style of practice, open awareness style of practice, right? But it, it can be really good to know what your instruction is, right? What you're trying to do. You know, there, there's a utility in using the breath as what's called an anchor, meaning a place where you start and a place that keeps the mind present, keeps the mind centered, helps collect energies of concentration, helps calm the system. 
For some people that's a really good object for many people, but not everybody. Some, for some of you that, that wouldn't be so good for a number of reasons. But, you know, sometimes people have the misperception that this is all about the breath and just getting on the breath and staying on the breath to the exclusion of everything else. So when I was talking earlier, at some point earlier, it's sort of blurring together now, isn't it? Some point earlier I said, when I was trying to encourage you to turn towards the body and practice with that field of awareness, I said, you know, You've got six sense doors. Remember what I said? You've got six sense doors. You've got seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. Then you've got the mind door and everything that happens there. Emotions, thoughts, intentions, memories, fantasies, personal narrative, all of that stuff. In order to have a practice that is most easily transportable into daily life, you want to practice on the cushion in a way that allows you to touch in when you're ready, when, when circumstances are right for you in terms of how collected your mind is, allows you to touch into and develop some skill and practicing with all six sense doors. Sometimes, you know, we make this big dichotomy between being on retreat and not being on retreat or doing meditation and then there's the rest of our life. In a sense, you can say we work in meditation to establish mindfulness, to establish presence, to establish clear seeing in the interest of coming to understand how things really are, in the interest of resting in reality and seeing through our, te- our deluded tendencies. But then when we've done that seeing, when we've gathered the mind, when we've established presence, when some wisdom has opened, we've got the other 23 hours of our day. <coughs> right? So you, you want something that's portable. You want to be able to embody your wisdom and your, your understanding when you're not on the meditation cushion. So on the meditation cushion is really where you start to develop the momentum of mindfulness, the habit of presence, the stability of mind, the deepening of wholesome qualities of mind like metta and patience and renunciation and generosity and the capacity to let go, that becomes part of the wholesome causes and conditions that are present in your mind stream when you're not on the meditation cushion. There's still there, there's, these kinds of states are still arising in the mind more frequently than they otherwise would because of the work that you've done on the, on the cushion. So there is a bleed-through effect. 
Maybe there should be a nicer word than that, but there is a carryover effect from what you're learning and the capacities you're developing on the cushion into the rest of your life, if you can see it that way. Because that's the point, right? So that's the, <clears throat> the download on mindfulness. And, and maybe just the closing point, because it's time to close, would be the importance of patience in learning how to do this. Because our conditioned tendency to go offline and kind of rumble around in unconsciousness and then act from that is really quite deep. Have you noticed that? And this is one of the big shocks when you're first starting meditation practice. First of all, there's the fact that it's hard to get your mind to go along with what you're directing it to attend to. Have you noticed that? It's kind of not too flexible, not too pliant, especially in the earlier stages of practice. It's just not so easily malleable. So this is a stage, this is a, a state, a stage of practice that everybody who has ever done this goes through, where the mind is not necessarily so cooperative. It's like kind of stiff, right? You know, you say, do this, pay attention to this, and it's like, you know, boing, rebounds into something else, you know, fights the whole process. Over time, it gets a lot more flexible, gets a lot more pliant, and is willing to do it. It finds its way into knowing how to do it. So it, it's a skill. There's a learning curve here that's really significant. And it's the very fact that there is a learning curve where you have to demonstrate courage, repeatedly showing up, some sort of faith or confidence in yourself that you can learn how to do this kind of thing, some sort of... Uh, Patience in getting up off the mat when it's dumped you off again, again and again. This is part of the process of the ripening of the paramis, which are these wholesome qualities of mind, which are developed in the process of the mind moving towards liberation and which are the hallmark of a liberated mind. So all the things that you might think are wasted mo motions or frustrations or cul-de-sacs or points of disappointment or frustration or all the rest of it are other than that if you can hold it in a bigger context. This is part of the learning and the dues paying that are an intrinsic part of developing familiarity with your mind and how it works, of making the workings of the mind, the mind stream itself, visible. And there's, there's no way around it. So everybody who has ever learned this has gone through these same kinds of things. Each of us on, in our own personal blend 
So this is, this is why the, the practice of insight meditation is sometimes called the path of purification. So the path of purification of what? The path of purification of the mind from delusion. And so in order to purify the mind from delusion, that means you're going to be running into it a lot in its various forms. And then the challenge is, well, how do I skillfully meet this? So this state is here, this experience is here. My mind is being like this, I'm having this emotion, I'm having this body sensation. How do I develop a meditative awareness with this just as it is? Okay, this is what's happening. Okay, so how do I meditate with this? The knee pain, the feelings of guilt, the depression, the aggression, the lust, the full baggage that we have as human beings. So this is, this is the learning, bringing these higher qualities of mind, the power of sati and the other wholesome qualities into connection with the parts of ourselves which are disowned, cut off, untamed, rejected, judged. So that's the process. So. It's a little different from stress reduction. And you may have noticed that by now. So that's probably about enough for tonight. So just to encourage you all in the undertaking that you're engaged in, you know, let your mind be uh, as innocent as a child's in learning this. Just as simple as it can be, letting go of the, the habit of complexification and letting yourself rest with immediate knowing things just as they are, as they are. Meeting them with goodwill to the extent that you're able and curiosity, holy curiosity. Curiosity about the whole of what you can know and experience. And that is the, the path of the mind coming to illumination from inside. Seeing its own workings and coming to understand a skillful relationship with whatever it experiences. And this is what the Buddha has taught us. So this is doable for human beings because the lineage comes to us from human beings. It's been passed from one mind to another for 2,600 years. So it's got a track record. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words settle down.
May this speaking and hearing of this exposition of Dharma be a cause and condition for our awakening. And may it be of benefit to all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.